Thanks to COVID-19, many of us are spending more time outdoors than ever before. We're planting kitchen gardens, learning to identify trees, and taking up bird watching. In honor of all those life-giving walks we've been taking with friends, for this Earth Day, With Good Reason invites you to walk with us. We're walking right at the edge of the forest here through the, through the Phragmites. And it is thick. We're having to push the Phragmites out of the way. It's taller than we are. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, we're spending the entire show outdoors. Ryan Hewish is a professor of biology at the University of Virginia College at Wise. He was named an outstanding faculty member by the State Council of Higher Education for Virginia. We join him and his kids on a blustery early spring walk on their farm in the foothills of the Appalachians. It's a sycamore fruit. Look at that. It's falling apart. Ryan, first tell me about where we're walking. So we are um, on my own property. We're in Scott County, Virginia. And we're at the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains, a place called Appalachian Cove. Just walking through the forest with my family, learning about um, some of the plants that that we've gotten used to eating and using as medicine. Oh, look, here's a bloodroot that's blooming. Wow, cool. See how beautiful that is? It has those golden anthers on the inside. Is this a farm? Yeah, it's a it's a forest farm and a homestead, so we have some cleared acres for our animals and for our vegetable gardens. But most of it is a forest farm where we steward wild native uh, edible plants and medicinal plants. How many animals do you have? What kind? We have a lot of chickens and we have dairy goats and uh, livestock guardian dogs. And as many children as animals? <laughs> Not quite. We have, we have five children, ages um, ranging from 17 down to four. And a couple of them came along this tour with you. Yeah, yeah. So all five of my children came with me. The older ones were kind of exploring on their own, but the younger two were the ones that were closest by my side. There's a big one up there, huh? We have what we call daddy dates, right? And so my, my children, when they're younger, um, like to go on those nature hikes with me. So especially my younger two now. I remember one nature hike I took with my two youngest. I was walking through the forest with them, and we were just talking about the things that we're hearing and seeing. And um, I turned around. My, my youngest daughter, she was three at the time, she had picked a bouquet of leaves for me. And um, I looked down at them, and she had picked poison ivy. And so... Oh, and. I just took her in the house and washed her hands with cool water and her goat milk soap. And then for good measure, I brought her back outside to introduce another plant that is used to treat poison ivy, which is um, jewelweed. And um, jewelweed, I call that Appalachian aloe because it's when you crush it up, it just feels like a nice soothing aloe lotion. And, um, and so we made two poultices out of that and we just smothered it on her hands and she held on to those for a while. Um, and uh, she didn't break out in a rash. And so in, in the past, when I've used this plant, the times when I applied the jewelweed poultice to my arm, I've never broken out in a rash. Oh. Here's one of my favorite springtime vegetables. This is wood nettle, Laportia canadensis. And it comes up, it's a tender green in the spring and the leaves are very serrated, and they don't have as many stingers as the uh, stinging nettle that many are probably familiar with. It's related to it, same family. But uh, we clip off these young greens, and uh, we just saute them, maybe steam them a little bit. My earliest memories are of plants. I've, for some reason, I've always had this close connection with plants. And um, I remember my my grandmother, she's... Swedish, and she would collect elderberries from the forest. Um, And as I got older, when I became a teenager, I was just fascinated with plants, and I would, I really got into foraging, right, wild foraging and finding my own food. And my grandmother was the only one that would join me in my in my meals. I guess the rest of my family were scared about my adventures. 
Oh yeah, these are two thwarts. Yeah, they have four petals. That's one way we know they're in the mustard family. Oh look, do those beetles fall out? The flower? How what beetle? Those two little black beetles. They, I think they were pollinating the flowers. Oh. Look, these ones are already going to fruit. Should we taste one of the leaves? Hmm. It's pretty good. When I learn plants myself, I like to use all my senses. And so that's what I try to do with my own children, with my students, is, um, you know, to, to smell them and to look at them. And, and sometimes they even make their own sound when you when you crinkle the leaves and kind of move them around like a piece of paper. They have their own unique uh, sounds as well. Um, and so and so often when my children are out, you know, like my three-year-old, she's now four, um, she often just grabs plants and smells them. And I think that really helps to cement it in your mind. You know, as, as they say, the nose knows. It helps with those neural pathways to help remember. Oh, you're right, more violets. Those are beautiful violets, huh? Here's crinkle root. Crinkle root? Why is it called crinkle root? Look at the roots and tell me. Because it's crinkly? <laughs> it looks crinkly. <laughs> <laughs> and one reason why they call it Appalachian wasabi is because the roots taste like wasabi. Which is really spicy. I'm gonna taste it. Oh, that's good. It's kind of spicy. I know people who like to put this on their food and put it on their sushi. Some people like to pound it up and put it on their meat, add a little bit of salt to it. It's a very warm flavor, like a nice <laughs> a nice warm mustard flavor. Wasabi. A lot of these native plants, the origin of their uses came through the American Indians, right? So the indigenous cultures in the Appalachians, that's the people who first started using these. And then when the settlers came, uh, they learned from them and they kind of mixed it into their own foodways as well. Um, and so some of these uh, tribal communities are trying to reclaim their, their food sovereignty Right? And so they're trying to learn more about these, um, these traditions and try to keep them alive. And look how beautiful those flowers are, too. Oh, we're almost to the waterfall. Man, could you imagine how many trout leaves are there out here, do you think? I don't know. Probably a lot more than 100. <laughs> <laughs> I bet there's more than a million trout lilies here. I bet it's hard to count so much. Huh? More than a million. Oh, look, look. What's this? Oh, spice bush? Yeah. How would you describe spice bush for somebody who's never smelt it before? Smell? Hmm. Let me smell it. Hmm. It smells. Is it a good smell or a bad smell? Kind of a. It's a spicy smell. It's yeah. like a. It's a good one though, right? Kind of like a mix between. Yeah. A ginger, a little bit, maybe allspice. Yeah. It's the same family as cinnamon, but it doesn't really taste like cinnamon. No. But it does have a nice, pleasant flavor. Yeah. Remember when we put the branches and leaves in our lentil soup to flavor it? Oh yeah. It gives it a nice soft flavor. It's not, it smells a little bit like sage too. Oh good. Yep. You're right. It does smell like sage. And you can eat it too? I mean, there was a little smell that really smelled like that, but I forgot the name. Then I remember the sage. Can you believe how many trout lilies are out here? Probably like a trillion. See all those ones you probably stepping on? So sometimes when I'm talking to people about certain plants, they they have a name for the plant that I don't recognize. And so I start asking the question about what it looks like or what it's used for. And it's almost like a game where, you know, we're trying to guess um, <laughs> what the other person is thinking of. And uh, one of those stories is where uh, a man was talking about a plant called shoemake. And he was talking about how it was used as, as medicine and as food, as kind of a spice. And I, I was so curious about this because I'd never heard of the plant shoemake before. And so I kept on asking questions, you know, about what else was it used for and how was it prepared, what, the, what part of the plant was used. Eventually I found out that he was 
referring to the sumac plant. And of course, you know, after you make that connection, you kind of hear that connection, right, with shoemake and sumac. I was very curious to find out where that name came from, uh, because there's other relatives of sumac in uh, the Middle East and Europe and other parts of the world that are more commonly used for spices and medicine. And so, you know, presumably, when people come to this new area, to the new world, when they see plants that remind them of home, um, they apply a similar name to them and use them for similar purposes. And so, in a way, when you document these names, you're also documenting that history that might be associated with it uh, and understanding that historical context and connection. And I think when people understand these connections historically and just the amazing stories behind it, it helps us be more connected with nature and with these individual plants and the species. Are they trout lilies? Uh-huh. How did you know they're trout lilies? Because they're like, they have like, a, like a ovalist shape leaf and they have like splotches on it. Yeah, what color are the splotches? They're like, like... So I remember one time when I was hiking through our forest, I came across a population of Vinca minor. That's a scientific name. Some people call it uh, periwinkle. But of course, there's a lot of different plants with the name of periwinkle. It's evergreen. It's like a, um, a creeping vine along the ground. And it has these beautiful uh, bluish purple flowers in the early spring. But I remember thinking this plant is not native to the area. But here I am in deep in the forest where there's no, you know, up on a hillside where I don't think there would be any, any homes or any, you know, past gardens. And then as I kept on walking, I came up across some headstones and I realized that there was a cemetery there. And so I got to thinking about it and, and realized that people probably planted that there around the cemetery for the metaphorical connections to death and the uh, possible eternal life and resurrection, you know, the symbol of, of, of a plant being evergreen and blooming in the early spring when everything else is is dormant or dead. I didn't think much more about it until maybe a few weeks later, there was a professor of communications and Appalachian studies at the University of Virginia's College at Wise. Uh, we were talking about things and she mentioned that she was trying to find out the identity of a certain plant called cemetery ivy. And as soon as she said that name, I thought, oh, she's probably talking about Vinca Minor. And she talked about how it was intentionally planted around cemeteries. And so now that I had that name, I was able to go do some research on Cemetery Ivy. And sure enough, there's other records about how people would intentionally plant this uh, at cemetery sites long ago. And nowadays, when you're trying to find these cemeteries that might be overgrown with plants, one indicator is looking for the Cemetery Ivy. And that's how you can find some of these, some of these grave sites. Could you imagine if you were a little chipmunk and lived out here? See all those holes in the side of the rocks by the roots? You can go out your front porch and see all those flowers. They're twice as big as you. Yeah. As an ethnobotanist, I understand and see this beautiful traditional knowledge associated with these plants. And sometimes when I talk to people about these plants, I, they say, oh, I wish you could have talked to my grandmother or my, my aunt or my grandfather. Um, and they kind of lament the fact that they don't know as much as they did. And so it seems like these traditions and these associations and these relationships really with these plants are kind of, are kind of disappearing, right? And that's one reason why we've uh, proposed our research to try to document this. And the, the title of our research is called Appalachian Ethnobotany, Documenting Traditional Uses, Values, Stories, and Lexicon of Plants and Fungi Through Ethnographic Research. You know, it's basically we're trying to document this, these rich ethnobotanical lore and values in Appalachia um, that might be dying or at least kind of dwindling in, in complexity. Oh, we don't want to stop on these. Do you know what these are? These are anemone. Mm. Look at that. It looks like they have two arms reaching up with the head. There are so many wildflowers, huh?
Ryan Hewish is a professor of biology at the University of Virginia College at Wise. He was named Outstanding Faculty Member by the State Council of Higher Education for Virginia. His family's forest farm and homestead is called Appalachian Cove. Sea level is rising faster on the Virginia coast than almost anywhere else in the world. And as it rises, it's creating what's known as ghost forests. Matthew Kerwin is the director of the Coastal Geomorphology and Ecology Lab at the Virginia Institute of Marine Science at William & Mary. He takes us to the Virginia coastline to walk into a ghost forest. All right, we're heading out down the York River from Gloucester Point over to Goobin Island to go check out some ghost forests on the island. It's a little bit breezy and choppy today, but not too bad, at least the weather's warm. I'm standing here in the middle of Goodwin Island, which is on the York River near the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay. And I'm standing on one of the higher parts of the island, which by Goodwin Island standards is actually only about five feet above sea level. When I look up above me, I see a pretty healthy looking loblolly pine forest. It looks much like a bigger, healthier pine forest that you'd see a little further inland. When I look up into the trees, I see straight, tall trees without too many branches. The branches I do see have uh, lots of green pine needles on them. In some cases, you can just barely see the sky because the canopy is so full. In many ways, it's a typical loblolly forest and appears to be healthy. But when I look at the ground, I can tell a slightly different story. When I look below, I see... Uh, a lot of undergrowth, see some green briar, some wax myrtle, some red bay, and of course a lot of, a lot of pine needles. But there's almost no loblolly pine seedlings, even in places where there are gaps in the canopy and there should be enough light for new seedlings to grow. That means that when the trees around me die, there's nothing to take its place. And that's really the, the first big sign of a forest that's in trouble. It's not enough to have healthy adult trees. You need uh, trees in the understory to take their place when they die. Now I'm gonna walk towards the marsh. We're walking down elevation, we're walking downhill. It's so uh, slight of a downhill that you can't really perceive it by just looking at it. But the vegetation actually changes quite a bit. You can tell that some of the loblolly pines are becoming more stressed. I see a few more dead branches. The loblolly pines themselves, despite being about the same age as where I was before, are now uh, are now shorter and uh, skinnier in diameter. Um, and the understory is becoming thicker. Now you might think that a thick understory with lots of shrubs, lots of wax myrtle would be a good sign, but actually it shows that there's more light reaching the forest floor because the canopy of the trees is starting to uh, diminish. And in fact, when I look up now, instead of seeing lush green uh, canopy, I see a lot of sky. All right, now I'm walking, uh, continuing to walk downhill towards the marsh, towards the water, and I'm essentially at the boundary between forest and marsh. But what's really different about this is that instead of the kind of salt marsh that most people think of, uh, I'm walking through a patch of what they call Phragmites. Phragmites is an invasive species There is a native version in the Chesapeake Bay, but what we're walking through comes to us from China, and it is the first plant that replaces the forest that we're here. I don't know if you can hear me 
struggling to make it through the Phragmites. It is thick. It's taller than I am. Uh, in some cases, maybe twice as tall as I am. And I'm having to push the stems out of the way to, uh, to clear a path. All right, so I'm still in the Phragmites, but I'm getting close to the edge. Uh, I've walked about, I'd say about 100 yards from where most of the uh, live green Loblolly ponds are. And now I'm standing in what we call a ghost forest. The ghost forest is marked by tall standing trees. Uh, the first ones I passed are trees that have just recently died from flooding of salt water. Probably came in on a real high tide or during a, a small storm. And I can tell they died recently because when I look at them, uh, most of them still have their pine cones, and some of them still even have needles on them. Uh, the needles, of course, are brown instead of green. Um, but as I walk away from the forest, I'm walking to places where the trees have been dead a longer time. Right now, I'm walking across a little pond. And now I'm back into, or I'm into uh, native Salt marsh. This is a marsh grass called Spartina patens. Some people call it salt meadow hay. Um, and there's still dead trees around me. This, uh, where I'm walking was all forest, uh, not even a hundred years ago. Uh, this is a marsh that was formed from sea level rise and saltwater intrusion. The land here in the Chesapeake Bay is sinking about twice as fast. Uh, as it does in other places around the country. Uh, and at the same time, sea levels are rising and the net effect is water levels that are increasing uh, much faster than most other places in the US and much faster than actually most places in the world. All right, so now I've walked about 300 yards from the modern forest and I can see marsh as far as the eye can see. This is marsh now that's more than 150 years old. Uh, in some cases, it's up to a couple thousand years old. But even that uh, formed as a result of sea level rise just a longer time ago. There's fiddler crabs running around on the mud in between the marsh plants. I see uh, the first signs of spring on a salt marsh are the emergence of the fiddler crabs and a few new green shoots of a grass called Spartina alterniflora. It's the end of March now, but in a month or two, uh, this marsh will be, will be much greener instead of brown. And all of the critters will be a lot more active. Oh, this is neat. I'm walking up next to an eastern red cedar tree, and a cedar tree has been blown over by the wind. It's actually still alive, but its roots are completely uprooted from the ground below it, and they barely have any soil still attached to them, which means I can see every bit of the roots of this tree. And it's really interesting because the roots aren't growing in a circle in equal directions from the base of the tree. Instead, the roots are growing very much towards the closest source of fresh water, which is the uplands, the upland forest. Uh, in other words, the roots are growing away from the marsh and away from salt water. They're in essence trying to find any fresh water that they can. One of my, uh, my lab manager, Tyler Messerschmidt, studied the root distributions of fallen down trees. And he's hypothesized that when the tree is trying to survive sea level rise by extending its roots in the uphill direction towards fresh water, he's hypothesized that it actually makes those trees more vulnerable to blowing over. And this is something we see in cedar trees many times. The trees send their roots uphill towards fresh water and as a result, become asymmetric and prone to toppling over 
in a windstorm. We see lots of fallen down, uh, uprooted red cedar trees, whereas the Lavalley pines tend to blow over up at the top and not uproot at all. As I look back from the marsh towards the forest, I see what looks like a wall of green. Uh, I'm looking over a wide, short marsh that's mostly brown this time of year. But when I look past the marsh, I see the green forest. And they're the low-lying coastal forests of coastal Virginia are mostly loblolly pine, which of course is green all year round and really stands out compared to the marshes surrounding them. But at the edge of that green forest, I can see lots of brown needles right at the edge of the forest where the marsh hits the forest. I see trees, some of which don't have any needles at all, but others where there are just a few live green needles on it uh, with a lot of missing needles and a lot of brown needles. I see little patches of, of brown and red colors on those surviving trees. And one of the coolest things is that every now and then I'll see a live tree that's somehow surviving way out in the middle of the marsh. I'm passing one now that's, oh, at least 100 yards from the nearest uh, big stand of trees. It's surviving pretty much on its own. It must be a little high spot that um, gets flooded just a little bit less uh, time and maybe a little less salty. Um, but for the most part, the marsh I'm walking across right now doesn't have any live trees remaining. Uh, as I walk towards the water, we're walking into marsh that's becoming older and older. And by the time I poke out to the edge of the marsh, we'd be looking at marsh that's about 150 years old. And at that point, the only sign of the forest that used to be there are not standing dead trees, but little stumps that are just barely poking out of the marsh surface. And if we kept walking even further, you'd have to look for those dead trees underneath the soil. If you took a shovel and dug a hole, there'd be a good chance you'd run into a, a dead tree branch or some roots, something like that. Matt Kerwin is the director of the Coastal Geomorphology and Ecology Lab at the Virginia Institute of Marine Science at William & Mary. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. Angel Garcia says his whole life has been about caves. He grew up in Puerto Rico where caves hold a special cultural significance. And now he's a geologist at James Madison University. He journeys with us into the dark and cool depths of a cave. There, the eerie quiet is broken by drips of water that form stalactites and stalagmites. Garcia studies these cave sculptures and their drips to uncover mysteries from our planet's past. Caves are really, really important part of the topography, part of the of the terrain in the Caribbean. For the people who were pre-colonial people, the Taino people, one of the, the creation um, stories, it is saying that there were two caves made by one of the spirits. And one of the caves that is called Casibahawa is where people like me, my, my family came from, right? And the other cave is where other people who are not like me um, hmm. came from, right? Um, like me. <laughs> yeah, you came from the other cave. That right. is, it's called Amayauna. But actually, in modern language, um, there is this saying that is just, it is making reference to that creation story, right? It's using in a context the word wakara um, that is interpreted as a cave. Te conozco desde el tiempo de las huacaras, right? I know you from the time of the huacara. And that's really special, right? Because you know that person from the time of the beginning. That's a really long time. 
So take me with you, take listeners with you, as though we're going into that cave for the first time with you. What you see, how large the caverns are, and especially what you begin to hear. Let, let me describe my trip to Cueva Los Gemelos. It is called the Twins Cave. So when you start getting into the front of the cave, right, um, headlights um, are getting on and you start getting into darkness. And there is one point that actually you need to walk really close to the ground, right? That you cannot walk straight. And, and at the end of this transect, you will find that the cave opened again. It looks like a 600 people auditorium. It's really big, right? But when you get here, right, you start exploring uh, in some places you have, you see stalactites forming and you see all the all this process, right, going on. But as more and more you start getting, exploring this cave, there is this small refuge, right? Oh, this little cave inside of the cave that um, that when you get your head in, and actually you can, maybe you can see it, right, a little bit in the ground and just look in through this refuge, you will find this beautiful image. It is an image um, of what it seems to be twin brothers um, being wrapped in a blanket. It is such a simple but at the same time, complex drawing. As you withdraw from seeing the image in the small cave of the twins, what do you begin to see and hear? Um, it's getting darker. Your senses start changing with every minute as more longer or deeper you get into caves. I want to, to focus in a little bit on the eyes, right? On the vision. Think about that somebody's asking you to turn off um, the headlamp, the, the source that you have in order to help your eyes to see, right? Have you been in a room that is so dark that there is no difference? There's literally no difference between having your eyes open or closed. You just feel your eyelids moving, right? Uh, opening in or, or closing. As you are in this complete dark room, remember that your headlamp is off. You start listening to other things of your body. Other senses are start getting amplified, right? Like, for example, if you are uh, moving your boot um, in the ground, that you you hear this the dirt, right? That that is kind of interacting with your boot. You you are aware of your breathing, right? In a, in a sense that I am breathing really loud, or or this is calm, right? You start getting sense of of your own interaction with, with, with the environment. And as more progress, not just darkness, but also complete silence, you start listening to, to your heart. You start listening more to, to other, other parts of your body that are just right in tune with these or amplified by the silence of the cave. Now I want you to get away from listening to, to parts of you, right? And start listening to the cave. You have it the distance that really far drop. It is so beautiful to listen because you can predict the rhythm, right? It is so constant. And you just want to, to, to listen more. And in some places, in some other caves that I have this experience, you have other realms of caves that are a little bit, the dripping that's a little bit faster. But in absolute silence, right, that sound is really amplifying. It becomes really something that your 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 ears and right your audition want to capture the more that you can so now think in other environments that now you have drips combined together different rhythms
owning locations that you can have water flowing. And this will be the sound of a, of, of a living cave, what they call a, una cueva viva, right? A living cave. What else is inside the cave? So the more that you start getting um, aware of the sounds of your environment, in some places you can listen to the bats flapping their wings next to you or just right, making sounds. Now everybody's going to be turning on their headlamps. So you're a little bit kind of like, oh, this is too bright, right? And even no, no light is getting to your face, it's just your eyes are adjusting back into the light, even though it feels a little bit of light, right, in, in the far away. And after that, you don't look things the same way, right? Because now you start getting, paying attention more with your eyes, also with your ears or in combination with your eyes. I understand that geologists can actually find a kind of natural record of climate, ancient climate, and climate change through caves. Yeah, think about uh, you when you look at uh, uh, when you cut a tree, right? When you slice a tree, and you can see what you learn in elementary school that tree has rings, right? And every ring is making reference to to a year, but also the thickness are making reference to to dry periods or or more um, right, more heavy rain and things like that, right? What is really interesting. <laughs> If you cut a stalactite, you will find these different layers being forming with the action of the tree from the roof or from a stalactite in the top. So we can look at the mineral that is formed and we can look at these elements of carbon and oxygen. And if we put this in a constraint of time, what we call an H model, you can make interpretation of regional or even local or regional changes that are related to the climate. This is what we call proxy, right? Um, if you have these variations, it can mean that it was a more drier period. It could be it was more wetter period. It could be that you have a more forested area on top of the cave. It can, it can be that you have a less forested area on top of the cave. This information, this archive of knowledge are inside of caves. Um, in Puerto Rico, back home, caves are portals to connect back with the people who were there before. Time passes different inside of a cave. Angel Garcia is a professor of geology at James Madison University. Deborah Waller is a biologist at Old Dominion University. She brings us up close and personal with some of our smallest neighbors, ants, bees, and termites. We join her at the Wyanoke Bird and Wildlife Sanctuary in Norfolk, Virginia, to tour the many ecosystems found inside dead trees and logs. There's so many different species of insects, and they're so important to the functioning of the earth. And we are just paving over the earth. We're destroying their habitat. It's, it's devastating what we're doing to insects. And people don't realize it. They don't realize the value of insects and they don't realize what they're doing. Just you know, making a, a beautiful green lawn using pesticides and fertilizers. You're just um, you know, destroying habitat that could be wildflowers for butterflies and bees and, and all kinds of insects. Okay, I'm I'm back at a dead snag. What's a snag? Well, a snag is a, is a um a stump essentially. I previously put out a piece of chocolate chip cookie and grape jelly in a little nook, and now it is full of black carpenter ants on the edge of the jelly, drinking it up. And there should also be some other ant species that I saw previously. 
the acrobat ant, but it looks like in this case the carpenter ants have taken over the bait. You know, when I see carpenter ants, I think trouble, but you loved seeing them there. Oh, carpenter ants are wonderful. And, and most carpenter ants do not um, eat fresh wood so or, or regular wood. So, for example, if you have um, ants in your house, carpenter ants in your house, then that means that you've got a leak someplace and you've got wet wood that is rotting. And the carpenter ants are just showing you where it is. So carpenter ants are not fearsome and something that's going to come in and destroy your house. They're going to show you where the, the damage is. Now I'm at a dead log that I'm lifting up and immediately a salamander skittles away. I just loved insects from day one. Was always looking to find out where they were and looking for new ones. There's some sow bugs. And I had a neighbor boys who loved looking for insects too. So, you know, we'd go out and explore. Another salamander seemed to be very abundant here today. In, in the very beginning, we had a, a pet spider outside our house when I was very little. And so I, at that point, realized that, you know, they're just wonderful, all the, all the arthropods that are out there. And then later on, I found something that I called a glue bug because it was like sticking to me. It was a, a beetle, it was actually a weevil. And I was just so fascinated by it. And then after that, I just was looking for insects every place. I'm peeling the bark away from a log and it is full of termites. And I see both soldiers and workers. And these look like the Eastern subterranean termite, which is a very common species in this area. So they're all running around trying to figure out where to go now that the colony has been exposed. So I'm going to put the bark back so they can have a little peace. They are social species, eusocial. They live in colonies with a, a king and a queen, and they make um, reproductives every year. They have workers and soldiers. They're, they're really amazing. The ones around here are subterranean, so we really rarely see them above ground unless we look into logs. But around the world, they build these huge structures, and they're just little teeny termites building these huge, massive structures out of, out of earth that they just, you know, put in the right place and, you know, put saliva in there and, and cement it together. They're just really incredible insects. I'm rolling over another branch and I see a long, black, skinny organism wriggling underneath the log and that is a millipede. So millipedes are very interesting. They often can produce cyanide to deter somebody from eating them, but otherwise they're fairly defenseless. They're not really good at running away, and in fact, most millipedes will just curl into a ball, and so they can release cyanide so that if a predator tries to eat it, it gets a bad taste and, and, or bad odor too, and runs off. I just found another log that is um, covered in sawdust, and there's piles of sawdust underneath, and I actually see the sawdust maker, which is a pasalid beetle. Sometimes they're called patent leather beetles. They're very large, maybe the length of your thumb, and they're shiny black. And they live in family groups. So the father and mother rear the young and they protect them. And if somebody tries to bother them, they make a squeaking sound to chase them away. I'm amazed by that. There are insects that parent together? Oh, yes, yes. Actually, some cockroaches do it also. But, but these pisalid beetles, the male and the female live together. They rear their, their big grub babies. And they, they actually help them throughout their lives so that when they're um, ready to pupate, they, they go and pile frass and, and sawdust around them so that the um, larva can roll around in it and have kind of a grip so it can pupate. Have you ever heard the squeak? Yes, I have. I've actually tried to make the squeak for you, <laughs> but they, um, they hid in a, a crevice before I could um, hold it. If you hold it <laughs> up to your ear, they go, ee, ee, ee. <laughs> they make other sounds, too. Um, we don't know what most of them mean. So the, the sound that you hear when you pick them up is defensive. 
but they make other squeaking sounds that uh, probably communicate with each other, but we don't know a lot about those. So I lifted up the bark of another log, and not only is it full of termites, but some of the termites are in the alate stage, with a nymph stage going to become alates. And you can tell because they're longer and white, and they're getting ready to become either males or females who will be the reproductives and go on a mating flight. So there are some soldiers in here too because they're gonna protect them, and some workers because they are taking care of them, but they're all waiting for the mating flight which shouldn't happen um, very long from now. Are termites important for the forest ecosystem? Oh, they are incredibly important. Yes, because they, they tunnel throughout the, the earth. They bring water up from deep resources. They bring nutrients up from deep resources. They're very important for soil fertility and, and soil aeration. They're, and many, many things eat termites. <laughs> Virtually everything will try to eat a termite. And they are just uh, so important in the food chain. They're just extremely important in nature. It seems also so are fallen logs, right? Absolutely. We heard recently with the California wildfires that um, some politicians were saying, well, we need to rake the forest and get rid of all those logs that are uh, fire hazards. And, but, but they're not. Actually, um, I've, I've worked in an area that has fallen logs as part of the ecosystem, and we would have prescribed burns. So the, the burn would like race through the, the forest and get rid of all the little twigs and things like that. But the logs would, you'd open them up and there'd still be termites and ants sitting in there. They'd be fine. The logs themselves are not part of the fire hazard. They're, they're actually communities there that are returning the nutrients to the soil. As I walk along the path in the preserve, I see many holes big round holes, and these are ground nesting bees who have emerged and are out searching for nectar sources and pollen to rear their young. What they will do is like get pollen and nectar and, and we call that provisioning, put that in the tunnel and then lay an egg on it and then they'll wall that off and then put another one next to it. And so different species of ground nesting bees use different materials to wall it off. But the bees I was looking at are called mining bees, and they just have a, a tunnel that goes down, and then they'll make little side cells and put the babies in each of these side cells. I just watched a bee crawl into her hole, so they're very active, clearing out their holes, coming out, going back in. I only saw that one. Oh, here's another one flying. They can memorize where the hole is. They often use landmarks to do this. And so they fly around trying to recognize their landmarks, and then they go down into their holes. They would not be welcome if they went into the wrong hole. One of them is sitting in the entrance to her hole, staring at me. Just now when I started speaking, she scuttled back down inside the hole but they're keeping an eye on me. I'm sure they're worried that I'm up to no good. Further along the path, over a patch of ivy, I see a huge number of male solitary bees swarming around just searching for the females because this is the time of year that they would mate so that the females would then go on to rear the young. These insects really are Dare I say sentient? What are they? Oh, they are sentient. Oh, absolutely. They have so many mental capabilities that we never appreciated before. Where I was looking, there were holes everywhere, and yet each bee knew her own hole because she had memorized the landmarks, what twig, you know, what stem was nearby. Do you think they experience any grief? My feeling about insects is that if they feel distress, which we know they can, that's to me, that's the same as grief. I think that, um, you know, it's hard to know what even another human feels, but insects feel distressed when they're captured or cornered or preyed upon. And 
that's it's difficult for them as grief is difficult for us. I don't try to say that it's exactly the same, but I do know distress when I see it. So I'm back at the snag, which had the cookie and grape jelly bait, and the carpenter ants are gone, and now the acrobat ants are here. And they are carrying away pieces of cookie, so apparently the carpenter ants got what they wanted, and now the others can come and take their turn. We could not live in the world without the insects. And we, we need to give them a place to live and to appreciate them. And it, it really doesn't take much. You know, in your own yard, you can, instead of having a nice green lawn, you can add bare patches for, like, the bees to, to nest in. You can have old stems where um, other bees nest. You can have um, all kinds of different wildflowers for different species of bees and butterflies. It's, it's just very important to to use what you have and to make it available to as wide a variety of insects as possible. Deborah Waller is a biologist at Old Dominion University. Support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients, uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monacan Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Maya Neer and Cassandra Deering are our interns, Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.